I um, hope you all have the chance to read through Psalm 34 in the last couple of days since uh, Dave announced it for the sermon today. Um, he's asked me to read this. I'm going to be reading a translation called the Complete Jewish Bible, so it'll sound a little different from what you may be used to in either the uh, Holman or an ESV or King James or, or whatever. Um, nonetheless, it's the Word of God, and it stands uh, to speak to us. Psalm 34. By David, when he pretended to be insane before Avimelech, who then drove him away, so he left. I will bless Adonai at all times. His praise will always be in my mouth. When I boast, it will be about Adonai. The humble will hear of it and be glad. Proclaim with me the greatness of Adonai. Let us exalt his name together. I sought Adonai and he answered me. He rescued me from everything I feared. They looked to him and grew radiant. Their faces will never blush for shame. This poor man cried. Adonai heard and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of Adonai, who encamps around those who fear him, delivers them. Taste and see that Adonai is good. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Fear Adonai, you holy ones of his, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions can be needy, they can go hungry, but those who seek Adonai lack nothing good. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Adonai. Which of you takes pleasure in living? Who wants a long life to see good things? If you do, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceiving talk. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace. Go after it. The eyes of Adonai watch over the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. But the face of Adonai opposes those who do evil, to cut off all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cried out, and Adonai heard, and he saved them from all their troubles. Adonai is near those with broken hearts. He saves those whose spirit is crushed. The righteous person suffers many evils, but Adonai rescues him out of them all. He protects all his bones, and not one of them gets broken. Evil will kill the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But Adonai redeems his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've got a copy of God's word, would you grab it? If you don't, there's some on the seat back in front of you. And if you do grab those Bibles in, in the seat in front of you, uh, we are on page 488, 488, Psalm 34. Um, we're excited here to take a break from our long series in 1 Corinthians. For those who don't know, 1 Corinthians is the longest letter in the New Testament, so we've tackled a lot, and we're just going to take a break from that. Um, our series in 1 Corinthians, as you can see on the board here, it, it, we're titling Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. And so it's been a lot about how do we live as the body of Christ, as individuals who are part of, uh, if you're new with us, you see the bird installation, that's all related to moving in step with one another, that we might be, as a body, a beautiful picture of the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So we pause from that uh, particular way of seeing which is focused on how are the people of God to be and, and we're moving now into 
uh, a perennial series in the Psalms. We were doing the Psalms each summer, and probably in about, well, it's been a while now, but the, the thought was in 15 years, hopefully we'll get through all 150 Psalms, but it uh, might take a little bit longer than that. So it's every summer, and we just pause, and, and we come to these songs, these poems uh, that have been the songs of the people of God for thousands of years now, even dating before the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and then, of course, the 2,000 years after, the, song, the songs of God's people, which are the Psalms. So we pause, and, and, and we're particularly, over the next six weeks, going to look at the character of God, remind us of the character of who God is. So um, as we enter into our time of teaching here, I'd just like to pray that the God of the Psalms would reveal himself to us as we study. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are revealing yourself to us. You are not staying hidden. You are not far off, but you have come near to us most fully in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, when God became flesh and walked among us and then gave his life as a ransom for ours. And then by the power of the Spirit, you rose your son from death to life to prove that not even death can keep us from the presence of God. So we ask now that you would come near and be here during our time of teaching. God, that you would teach us something new, that you would refresh some old learning, that you would clarify some confusion about who you are. It is the greatest, greatest privilege as a finite human being, as a, as a created being, to know, intimately know my creator. And I pray that our study, both today and in the weeks to come, we might know you better as we study your songbook. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you uh, heard Tom uh, read, um, we'll be looking, every time he said Adonai, we'll see in our scriptures, the Lord, which actually isn't even the original translation it's actually Yahweh, the personal name of God. So every time in your Bible you see either uh, in Tom's version Adonai or in our version you'll see capital L-O-R-D. If it's in all caps, it's using the personal name of God, Yahweh. So the first verse in the CSB, which I'll be teaching from, says, I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise will be on my lips. I will boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. So this, in the Psalms, you'll see this very personal, intimate relationship that the psalmist had. This, and many, most of the Psalms were written by King David. Um, you see this interesting uh, introduction to the psalm. Not all the psalms have that. I'll be explaining that in just a second. Um, but I'd like to start by... Um, doing the most important thing, which is just talking about my T-shirt. Um, you probably wonder, why is Dave preaching in a T-shirt? I don't always preach in a T-shirt. But if you're new to Sedaris, just know there's Easter eggs hidden all over <laughs> things we do here. Everything has meaning. And when I was picking out my wardrobe for this morning, I saw this shirt and I said, I've got to wear this shirt for a number of reasons. This is probably the first Sunday where I, I, I didn't feel like I could wear anything I could wear in November. It's been a very cold uh, summer of Sundays so far. So I said, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta go summer light. But then I realized there's something about this t-shirt. Both it proclaims the Pacific Northwest, my hometown, as I mentioned earlier, my home region as a, a beautiful place. 
But do you notice anything else about my t-shirt? This beautiful creature. What is this creature? This is the famed Sasquatch. Um, if you don't know the difference between Sasquatch and Yeti, look it up. Not right now. But I believe this is Sasquatch. And I was thinking about it. So this is a good t-shirt to wear this morning. Why? Is it true? Does Sasquatch exist? The great question of the Pacific Northwest. But it isn't the great question of human beings for all time. We're, all, we're constantly asking what is true and what is untrue. And while in the Pacific Northwest we talk more about the Sasquatch than we probably need to, people throughout history have asked one or two essential questions about truth and untruth. And they, it goes like this. Is there a God... It's the first question, and most people, uh, and most places, and most times, including right now, believe that there is. And then the second question goes like this. Is he, or this God, good? Have you asked that question yourself? I know I've asked myself that question over and over again. Is this God I claim to worship actually good? It can be hard at times. Maybe you find yourself in a season where you're struggling for the first time to answer that question, is God good, in the affirmative. Maybe you're having a dark night of the soul and you're saying, I don't know anymore. Maybe you've never asked the question and now you're here for the first time asking the question, is there a God and is he good? And I think this psalm will help us figure out the answer to that, but actually more importantly than just giving us the answer, is how to find the answer. You find plenty of people that will tell you, yes, he is, just trust me, but how can you know? How can you be sure that this God of these scriptures is actually good? So the form and the structure of this psalm is actually uh, what the scholars say is a testimony psalm. It's not actually a thanksgiving psalm of thank you God for being good. It's actually a testimony psalm of he is good. So it's almost evangelistic in that way. It's just proclaiming the goodness of God. But it's also going to give us a little bit of if you're not sure, let me tell you how to find out. The reason we know it's not a thanksgiving psalm is you might have noticed, but there's no direct, there's no direct address to Yahweh. It's just talking about Yahweh. So you could imagine King David who wrote this psalm, and we don't know when he wrote it or the exact circumstance he wrote it. It gets connected with this story, but I don't think he wrote it during this story, perhaps in reflection on this story, or some later um, compiler of all his songs added this uh, little introduction. But he wrote it thinking about how good God was, how powerful he was, and how he had rescued him. And he wants everybody to know. That's why he says in those first three psalms, I will boast in the Lord. I will boast in Yahweh. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. You just picture him rallying the people to proclaim the Lord's greatness with him. Come on, join me. That's the hope. The first three verses give us the hope that all people would join in and exalt the greatness of, of this God, Yahweh. 
This personal God who's revealed himself, that's given us his personal name, that's come near to his people. He says, come with me. I'd love for you to praise him with me. Now, very quickly, let me just, it's a very funny little introduction. It says, concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and he, that's David, departed. There's a funny little story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm just going to read it for you real quick. And part of this is I just love the Bible because I, I didn't remember this story. <laughs> this is a crazy funny story. So I just want to read it to you. And the, whoever's compiled the Psalms has added this just little introduction of saying, however David felt in this moment, this Psalm that he wrote connects or almost answers his fear in this moment. Like he's saying, David came in his reflection to see the goodness of God and how God was with him even in this crazy situation. And so the backstory of 1 Samuel 21 is that the king at the time, the first king of Israel, David was the second ever king of Israel, the first king of Israel's name was Saul. Um, He was a bit of a tyrant, and he lost his mind. And he saw David as a threat because David was a great military commander. And uh, he could see the people loved David more than they loved him. And, And so Saul tried to kill David several times. For some reason, David didn't leave the first time Saul tried to kill him, which is a whole other story. But this last instance of Saul trying to murder David, David flees. And um, if you know the story of David, uh, at some point he'll come and he'll hide in a cave. And It's a great story. Read 1 Samuel. But right here what we have in chapter 21 is David has fled from Saul's presence, and he went to King Achish of Goth. Now, we don't know why... Um, the, the, the psalm says Abimelech. Perhaps that was just a title for all the, the Philistine kings. But the actual king is King Achish, according to chapter 21. And it says this, But when David came to King Achish of Goth, his servant said to him, said to the, the king, Isn't this David the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? So they'd actually heard people singing songs about David. And the song goes like this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So even though David wasn't actually king, they were wrong. He's not the king. The the surrounding nations realize this is a powerful man. Now, when David heard this, he rightfully began to fear. Because when your enemy finds out that almost like the true king is in their presence, what are they probably going to do? They're probably going to try to get rid of you. So it says David took this to heart. And he became very afraid of King Achish of Goth. I just love this. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to have fear. The question is, what do you do with that fear? So David was afraid, rightfully so. And so what did he do? He pretended, verse 13, to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. This is why I had to share this with you. (laughs) He pretends to be insane, and he just starts graffitiing the city walls. What? This is King David, the man after God's own heart. Then look at what happens. The the, the king and and his posse, they see this, and they say, look, 
You can, or the king says, look, you can see this man is crazy. Achish said to his servants, why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? The king's like, get him out of here. <laughs> I don't, he's, he's not a threat to me. I don't know why you brought him around. Get rid of him. I got enough crazy people. I just, I was like, this is so hilarious. I got to share this. So that's the context that the compilers of the Psalms want us to think about when we're thinking about this Psalm. I actually don't know, and most scholars don't know exactly why they thought this tied, except the fact that at times we will have great fear. Fear that might even drive us to the only way we can think to get out of the situation is to pretend that we're crazy so that somebody would let us leave. And God has rescued David in so many ways. This is just one of the ways in which God has helped to rescue David. So if you are experiencing fear, if you don't know what comes next, if you feel like the world is out to get you, David is going to tell us, I've been there and I turn to the Lord and he is good. He's not telling you to go graffiti <laughs> the buildings next door. That's not what this psalm is about. But God is faithful and trustworthy. And God's gotten David out of a lot of jams. Jams that you and I probably will never experience. And David knows he is good. He is trustworthy. You can put your faith in him. And so he'll help us to see that through the rest of the psalm. So, that's the context in verse 1, he says something important. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise him always, or his praise will always be on my lips. The mouth and the lips are important to this psalm in particular. Because look at verse 13. Jump all the way to verse 13. What, is, what does it say? At this point, he's talking. He says, come to me. Listen to me, children. I'll teach you about how to fear the Lord. That is to have reverence for Yahweh. Who is someone amongst you that desires life, loving, long life, to enjoy what is good? Everyone say, me, right? I'd like to, to enjoy what is good. He says, there, he says, if you do, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. So, so there's something huge here to see. You can get kind of lost when you just, just read it. The psalmist is saying there's a right way to use your lips and your words and the air that comes out of your lungs, and there's a wrong way. And this is a constant theme throughout Scripture. Go to the book of James elsewhere. The, what you do with your words, your breath, your lips, your tongue is incredibly important. And the reason why it's so important is not primarily how we think about it sometimes as religious people. Uh, just don't say a bad word. Just don't swear. Yes, those are things you shouldn't do, but as we'll see when we talk about what does goodness mean, we're going to get there. That's the character we're looking at today, the goodness of God. Evil is more a deprivation of good than it is a thing in itself. Goodness is a thing in itself. So evil is, is missing that mark of goodness. That's how the Bible talks about good and evil. And so... Using your lips wrongly is not just about not saying certain things, but it's also failing to say the right things. 
So when I look, like, as I was studying this psalm this week, I was getting so excited. The primary goal of Sedaris Church, our mission is to help people consider Jesus, but the primary goal or the vision that we have, the hope that we have, is we realize that every single human being that's ever been created was given a mouth and lips and lungs and breath and vocal cords in order to do what? To exalt and lift high and praise with their lips at all times their creator God. That's what they were created for. So the vision of Sedaris Church is through consideration that we might help people get to the place where they could use their lips as they were meant to use, to use them in a good way, a God way, to glorify their creator and savior, Jesus Christ. That is what we are doing. And guess what, my friends? This city in particular doesn't know how to use their lips that way. Maybe about 4% if we're being generous. Know how to use their lips to glorify, exalt, lift high the person of God. That's our biggest problem in this city. That's our biggest problem in the world. That not enough people are using their lips in a good way, which is to glorify the greatness of God. It's that simple. Am I living a good life? Ask yourself, through your words and also your actions, are you exalting the greatness of God. So, of course, to do that well, you have to not do certain things, which is speak lies, wickedness, untruth. You must not have deceitful speech. You must not use your tongue to tear people down, to gossip about them, all the things that Scripture also reminds. But that's not enough in and of itself. You must do the thing, the good thing you are called to do, which is exalt. Man, if you, were, if you kind of grew up in church or you're a religious person, you might have only focused on the things not to do, and you, you, nobody ever told you, what am I supposed to do? I care more about the thing you're supposed to do than the thing you're not supposed to do, because guess what? If you can't stop talking about the greatness and goodness of God, you're not going to have enough breath in your lungs to say the bad things about God. You see that? Just fill it up with the good. There ain't no room for the bad. We do the opposite, and we sit over here, just don't do bad, just don't do bad. And then it's just... Eating away, eating away, eating away. Just fill it up with the goodness of God. Speaking of him, talking about him. When you get together, it's going to be hard to gossip if you're talking about how good God is, where you've seen him this week, what he's done for you, whether in good times or bad. Fill it up. That's what we're being called to in this psalm. Fill up your life. Fill up your mouth with exaltation. So the problem is we don't do that. And part of the reason we don't do that is we don't know if he's actually good. So we don't want to misspeak. We don't want to lie. We don't want to tell our friends that he's great because we're not sure he actually is. So that's the solution. The solution is to how in the world do I become so sure that he is good that it's not hard to say he is. It's not hard to sing my guts out whether I'm a good, good singer or not. Me and Tom were talking about that. I can't sing, but I sing my guts out. So don't sit near me. It just ruins it. No, but you see, it, how do I know he's good? How do I know? And David is going to help us. He's going to give us this really famous verse that helps us to know. How can we know for sure that God is good? So let's keep reading. Uh, actually, let's jump down. To verse 8. Verses 4 to 7 are basically 
David recounting how God saved him. That's how David knows he's good. So David says, I know he's good. He saved me time and time again. We've already talked about that. So he says, this is what I hope we get to. This is how I came to know he's good. Now he's going to say, this is how you can know he's good. Verse 8. This is the first imperative. So this is the first time he uses a verb that's like, you need to do this. He's talked about his past, but he says, you need to do this. Because this is the solution. What does he say you need to do? Verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He says that it's an imperative. You need to go taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he goes on to say, How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. How happy are those who are his holy ones, who fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Okay. So the solution to the problem is not just force people to say God is good, because that doesn't mean anything. If, it, if, it, if you don't believe it in your heart that he's good, that doesn't count as good, just saying the right words. So how can you know in your own heart that he's good? David wants to help you get where he already is. He says, taste and see. So I've been thinking about this a ton this week. Taste and see is, is what kind of language? It's, ex, it, it's experiential language, right? It's, it, it's a sense language. I've got, I've got to taste that it's good. I've got to see that it's good. I can't just tell you it's good. You need to taste it and see it for yourself. You need to experience it. Which got, which got me thinking. Um, good is also a weird word, Right? Because if I ask you to describe what, what, what is good, what is good? <laughs> like, what is it? Is it spicy, <laughs> sweet? Like, it, like, we're talking about food here. Like, when you go to a good restaurant, right? Like, and I ask, and I ask you, was it good? You don't start to talk to me about necessarily, was it spicy or sweet or salty, right? That's not what we mean when we ask good. Now, I could ask you, what did it taste like? And then you could use those descriptive terms. But I'm really asking you, did you like it? Was it pleasurable? Was it good? And then if you ate a good meal, you say, it was good. It was good. Which is saying, I experienced it as good, delightful, pleasurable. It's experience language. So goodness is sort of hard to describe even. So let's think about when we say God is good, what, do we, what does that even mean? Is he spicy? Some of us are like, I do not like spicy food. No, he's not spicy. He's good. Okay. So this goodness of God, what is it? The more I thought about it, the more we talked about it as a staff, me, Tylene, Ryan, we're like, goodness, I think we just added an extra O. Goodness is godness. So when we say God is good, we're kind of saying God is God. There's something about him that's just right. There's just something about him that's real. There's just something about him that's there. There's just something about him that comforts because of his presence. He's good. It was like, yes, there's all these other attributes of God, his omnipotence and omniscience. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's tender and merciful and full of grace. We know that because of the cross. We know all these attributes, but his goodness is just kind of like his godness. He is good. It is what God is. 
And so whatever God does is therefore good because God doing something is good. So are you good? Yes, he created you. God is good. You are good. Yes, you've fallen from grace and the fullness of what that goodness is because you've fallen from the likeness of God. But you are good because you're creating the image of the good God. So goodness is this weird thing. So we're trying to, like, how do we describe it? If somebody asks us, how do we know that God's good? And then Tylene pops in, so I'm going to share her story. She says, God is so good, he just knows what I need. That's not his omniscience, though, because she was, she was couching that phrase in an experience that she had. She's a little bit broke, because she works for a church, but... So she decided, I'm not going to go to this concert I really wanted to go to. Maverick City Music played at Climate Pledge Arena, formerly Key Arena. She really wanted to go, but she's like, I've got to save money. So she didn't buy a ticket. Like two days before the concert, something like that, right, Tylene? I get an email from the concert promoters because they were emailing churches. They say, hey, do you have anybody at your church that might want to volunteer? Of course. I thought of Tylene. I forwarded to Tylene. This is, by the way... Sort of, side note, it's good to be friends with me. Um, and so I, I emailed Tylene, and Tylene emailed them, and she volunteered. Well, it turns out, and you didn't know this when you volunteered, another plug, serve God. They said, actually, you, you're, you get a free ticket. They did say that when they said you volunteered, and she was thinking kind of nosebleeds. Volunteers got front row seats to the concert. What? What? And then the music washed over her. And in that moment, right, you're like, God is so good. I can't put my finger on it. I don't understand. He just knew what I needed because you needed that in that moment. You didn't tell me. You didn't tell anybody. You needed someone to sing over you because you sing over us every week and you bless us. God said, you need that, Tylene. And so he puts you front row and he just blesses you. And you say, God is so good. It's an experience. You're overwhelming. It's like you're bubbling with the goodness of God. It's just coming out of you. And I felt that as you told that story. But you couldn't, you couldn't quite describe it. It's not even like a prescription of just do that and you'll experience the goodness of God. For you, he knew what you needed. He's so personal. He knows exactly what you need. He's good. So then I asked Ryan. And Ryan's like, oh my gosh, you guys are going to flip out. You're going to think I'm such a nerd. And I was like, yes, probably. So then, if you don't know Ryan, he studied astrophysics in college. A little nerdy. But he said, about two or three years ago, and I remember when he did this, I drove down to Oregon with my girls and my wife, and we went to see the solar eclipse. And there was a place in Oregon that you had to go to to see it perfectly the way it was meant to be seen. So Ryan drove down there. I remember when he did this. I said, go, Ryan. Astrophysics. Gotta go. And he went down there, and he said, and I never heard him tell this story. He said, I sat there, and when the eclipse came about, and I saw the perfect rings and I saw the flames, and he has his own telescope, by the way. <laughs> Shout out, right? Pretty cool. Cool guy to know. Telescope. He said, I saw it, and it was like, what overwhelmed me, he said, was the goodness of God. I couldn't describe it. It wasn't just saying, oh, God is so good because he created the moon and the sun. It's that he knew how seeing the moon and the sun overlap like that would hit Ryan's mind and heart and overwhelm him with joy about his goodness. I said, God is good. You see, it's an experience. He couldn't put words to it. He just said, 
I remember feeling the goodness of God in that moment. God is so real to me right now, is what Ryan was saying. And he knew that I needed to see that to know how real. Tylene, you see, needed to know that particular thing to remember God's realness, his presence, how personal he is, all of that come together in God's goodness. And this morning, I didn't have a story of my own, though I know of God's goodness. I picked up my Bible to see, I was looking at my, this is an NIV study Bible. I was just like, I just want to see what the NIV study Bible says about this particular word in this passage. Just one final note and thought, and I picked it up and I saw this sticker on the back of my Bible. This was the camp that I was a counselor in when I was in college over here at UW. And this camp is in Arkansas. How in the world did I get to Arkansas? Long story. Now, something happens in Arkansas that never happens here for a kid from the Pacific Northwest. Thunderstorms. The second night I was there, it started to storm. And some of the other southern counselors said, you ever seen a real thunderstorm, Dave? I said, no. So why don't you just go out to that little outlook there in about 15 minutes. I went out there and I stood there. And I watched God put on a firework show like I'd never seen before. There were tree branches falling around me. I probably shouldn't have stayed. I was the only one that stayed. Everyone's like, we got to get out of here. I was like, oh. I was just like, they're like, I don't know if he's going to make it, but he's from Seattle. Nobody will know. (laughs) We'll just bury his body. It'll be fine. So they left me out there, and I was just like, oh, it was so good to watch the, you know. And and his other characteristics, his other attributes were on display. His power. I needed to be reminded of his power But ultimately, it was the experience of he's so good. In a thunderstorm, he knew exactly what I needed to remember he was good. You see that? It's this experience. That was for me seeing, tasting and seeing God is real. He's here and he's showing off for me. Have you had that? Have you tasted and seen that God is good? It's so incredible. Now, this goodness is like, it's the, I, I'm trying to think of words. You don't have words. It's like how you describe God. It's like the realness. God is real. He's there. He's real. He's weighty. The goodness of God is like weightiness. It like just sort of sits on you. It's like a good weight. You just feel it. You feel like you're in the Word. It's like I'm not just floating. I'm not, he's like gravity. He like just, he puts that perfect amount of weight on you that you feel that you're real and that you matter and that you have purpose and meaning. It's good. And then he's trustworthy. It's like that weight's not going to crush me. That power of that storm's not going to crush me. He's good. There's all these things sort of wrapped up. And that's what, that's what David's sort of getting at. He just over and over he says, you can trust him. He's good. Look at verse 10. He says, he says listen, guys, young lions. So what is a young lion? It's a very powerful beast of the field. They can get their own food whenever they need it. They're not relying on something else. Young lions. What does he say? Even they lack food and go hungry. But not those who seek the Lord. They will lack nothing. They will lack no good thing, he says. Wow. Even the strongest animal will at times lack something. Not the people of God. Now, if you're a real thinker, you're like, wait a minute, there's been plenty of times in my life that I've lacked. Or there's plenty of times in my life that God hasn't protected me. There's plenty of times. Are we just being naive here? 
in this, in this psalm, 12 times he uses an absolute. All, everything, never, nothing, nothing will come on you, you'll never be this, you'll always be that, all, all, all. You could go back and circle all the times that it says all, all the alls. You think, like, people like, that talk like that are naive, they're dreamers, we've got to be realists here, right? So some of us are saying, that's okay. He's not being naive. In fact, I, one, of, one of the things I do, marital counseling, premarital or postmarital, I always say, never use always, never, and all. Right? That's what fools do. <laughs> I can just never say it. Your spouse is not always terrible. <laughs> it's not all the time, okay? But we all do that. I do that. And I have to, Allie and I have this joke because our premarital counselors told us not to do that. So every time we do that, we just say, what would Bruce and Marty say? And then we just move on. By the way, laughter is the best way to get through a fight. <laughs> just laugh it off. Make fun of yourselves. Don't take yourself too seriously. Easter egg. Now, the thing I want to tell you, okay, it's okay to say that about God. He ain't your spouse. You see that? He's totally different. He is always trustworthy. He is always on time. He always gives you exactly what you need. No prayer goes unanswered, even if that answer is no. He always answers exactly right. That's hard to believe, right? Because I can think of a number of times where he didn't answer the prayer in the way I thought he should. But God is always giving you exactly what you need. So you can use it of God. David's not scared to use it of God. Of course, David wouldn't have liked to have to be, pretend to be insane to get out of this predicament. But he did. It doesn't mean that God wasn't always with him, always giving him a good thing, always giving him exactly what he needed. So David's fine to always use all with God. So when we say God is always good, again, we think of always good meaning giving us good things. I have a good mother. You say, Dave, explain to me why your mom's good. Yeah, I can tell you about all the good things she's given me. That's definitely a part of it. But there's plenty of times she hasn't given me things. Guess what I still say? My mother is good. You see that? Goodness is not tied just to the good things. But we tend to think that way when God doesn't give us a good thing, that he's not good. David doesn't struggle with that. He knows God's always giving him good things, even when it's suffering and pain. So that's the thing I want to make clear. Yes, God protects us, but that doesn't mean he keeps us from suffering. And it doesn't even mean he keeps us from death. Do you think Jesus had problems saying, my father is good, when the father said, I need you to go to the cross and take upon yourself the sins of the world? Jesus wasn't saying, wait, is the Father not good? Did I get this wrong? No, he said, God is always good. He said, yes, this is hard. He asked, could you take the cup from me? I don't want this. But then he said, God, I know. Father, I know you're good. I know your plan is good. I know you're working all things to good. So I'll go. So life is full of suffering. There's two things I know about life. It's full of suffering. It's full of it. The other thing I know is that God 
is good and faithful even in my suffering. If you do not yet know God personally, you can only answer the first premise. God or suffering is a part of life. Once you've tasted and seen that God is good, you can say, yes, suffering is all over life. And life is full of suffering. But God is good even in my suffering. I want you to be able to say both. One of the hardest questions to answer in every age is why does God allow suffering if he's good? Or just raise your hand if you've asked that question. Why is there suffering if God is good? Yeah. And there's lots of ink spilled to try to answer that question. It's, a hard, it's the hardest question. So if you've asked that question, you're not asking a wrong question. You're asking a right question, and God wants to give you as much of an answer as you need. For some, you need more, and that's okay. Come, let's talk about it. Let's have coffee. Let's talk about how I can know of the goodness of God, even in a world full of suffering. But I'll give you one answer, very quick little apologetic for God, that it is not unfathomable that there is a good God and lots of suffering. I believe that God allows us, you might even say wants us, to experience suffering. Because he wants us to experience the alternative of goodness. So when we talk about the good news, right? That's what gospel means. It means good news. Have you ever thought about that? How much suffering is a part of the good news? To accept the gospel as true is to accept that you are full of sin and evil. and You've fallen short of who God created you to be. You've rebelled against your creator. That you're selfish, self-centered, full of hubris and desires that shouldn't be there. You have to accept all that bad news. Why? To see how good it is that God died for you. You see, so goodness and badness are always working together. Think about Adam and Eve. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, we hear about God creating the first people. Male and female, he created. In the image of God, he created them. And he set them out to do the task of representing him in the world, of being creative and and stewarding all that he'd done, to magnify and exalt his name as creator. And what's the very first thing, what's the very first thing Uh, doubt that creeps in and it comes in the form of a serpent a fallen angel who comes with this question are you sure God's good did he really say that you can't eat of the tree of life how is that good how is that the, the, the goodest possible good that there's a tree that you can't eat from are you sure you haven't misread who he is are you sure he's good That's the question. What do they not have that we now have? What do they not have? The experience of the alternative. They had yet to see what's other than God. And when they ate, their eyes were opened, sin entered the world, and they now saw the opposite of God, the opposite of good. They saw bad. 
they watched their firstborn murder their secondborn. They saw bad. And they're thinking, how could I have ever doubted the goodness of God? What was I thinking? And, and then we ask, why did he allow that? Why did he even plan that? Because I don't think we can see the goodness of God or taste the goodness of God until we've tasted and seen the alternative. Many of you know my story. If you don't, the whole reason we're even sitting here considering Jesus together is that on March 17, 2007, my sister Kim, my older sister, the age of 26, was struck by a semi-truck while cycling and killed instantly. For years and years, I had moments of goodness of God. This was before Kim died. And I sat when I got the phone call and I asked, was I wrong? Are you good? How can that be good? And he answered. He overwhelmed me with his goodness, his realness. His weight fell on me like a blanket. Pressed on my brain so hard, my vision turned white. I know I could trust him. I know he was good. And to this day, if you've heard me tell my story, I tell it a hundred different ways, but I say that was the worst day of my life. And it was the best day of my life. I saw the worst that sin and death have to offer, and I saw the best that God has to offer. I knew he was real in a way that I couldn't have even dreamed of before. He had to reveal to me the brokenness to show me that he can repair. He had to show me the realness of death to make me understand the goodness of the promise of resurrection. If you ask anybody, maybe that's been in the church a long time, how good is the promise of resurrection? Then ask somebody who death has come to their doorstep and ask them, how good is the promise of resurrection? You don't know how good the promise of the resurrection, even if you believe it, until someone you really love dies. I didn't have it until March 17, 2007. I never knew how good the promises of God were. How good the physical, historical, real resurrection of Jesus was until I got a phone call that said, if God's not good, you'll never hear your sister's voice again. You'll never see her face. She no longer exists to you, no matter how much you want her to. And God in that moment met me with the realness of the resurrection. If I hadn't had the alternative blasted in my face, I wouldn't have known how good God truly is. I say all that to say, David didn't regret his suffering. David didn't regret how many times, how many people tried to kill him. He saw it all as the revelation of God and God's goodness. And he says, I can't stop singing about it. I mean, think of how many poems he wrote. He didn't just write one. He just kept writing about the goodness of God. And over and over again, he talks about in the face of suffering, in the face of death, in the face 
of the worst horrors you could see, he says, I still see more clearly now the goodness of God. I think God allows us to see the alternative, to experience the alternative, so that we can experience him. Because the only thing that outweighs death is real life, not hypothetical life. The only thing that outweighs addiction, however much pleasure that brings, is an addiction to the real God, not just an idea about him. You have to taste and see him for yourself if you're going to break an addiction. You have to have something more powerful. The only thing more powerful than death is life and life in God. You've got to have the real thing. You've got to taste and see. And so when I hear this taste and see, I think of Blaise Pascal. You've heard me quote him. He was a contemporary of Descartes. But he kind of rejected Descartes' total, uh, total allegiance to reason and logic. He was very smart. He has mathematical uh, <laughs> equations named after him. Pascal's theorem. He invented game theory. He invented the first calculator. He invented the the first railway in Paris. He's a very smart fellow. But he rejected Descartes because Descartes was saying, I think, therefore I am, meaning the way to find God is through the mind alone. He said, yeah, the mind is important, but it's not enough. You have to taste and see that God is good. And so Pascal has this famous sort of theological uh, idea called Pascal's Wager. You may have heard of it. And Pascal's Wager is often misunderstood. Pascal says... Think about, he's using game theory. He says, think about the potential possible rewards if it's true. If God is real, if God is good, if resurrection is true, if he's making all things new, the potential reward. Then he thinks about what, what, what would the wager need to be? What would I have to put in? What bet would I have to put in? What would I have to risk in order to find out if that's true? And so... If you put in the risk and you find out it's not true, you've lost the bet, right? If you put in the bet and you find out it is true, you've gained everything. So his whole thing was, kind of makes sense mathematically <laughs> and logically to make, to make the bet. And, and people misunderstand and they think, oh, well, you're saying just believe because it might be good for you. No, he's saying, he's saying the bet is, for instance, putting a year of your life into testing the theory there is a God and he is good put a year of your life into tasting and seeing if you get to the end of that year and you haven't tasted anything and you haven't seen anything if the only thing you've tasted and seen is actually God is not good he is not trustworthy he is not worthy of my praise then you've wasted a year you've lost it you don't get that time back you don't get those 52 Sundays back at Sedaris you don't get those many dozen cohort meetings or cadre meetings. You don't get them back. Waste of time. But what if you did it for a year? What if you, what if you went on an exploration? For one year, I'm going to go and, and take David's words, and I'm going to try to taste and see if God is good. Yeah, you might never get that year back. Or you might get eternity. Is it worth the bet? Don't believe because that. Believe that you will taste and see. 
Because that's what David says. You will taste and see that he is good. It's okay that you don't know now. I want you to hear me say that. It's okay that you don't know. I don't think it's logical to not take the risk to taste and see. God wants to reveal himself to you. He wants you to have the experience that I've had, that he is good. And he wants you to turn and praise him. Back to verse 12. This is my question to you. Who is someone who desires life? Raise your hand. Who is someone, if if you agree with this, who is someone that desires life? No, keep your hands raised. This is, come on, don't be embarrassed. It's okay to desire life. Who of you, keep it up if you agree with this, who loves a long life to enjoy what is good? You want that? I want that. I want to find that God together. I want to taste and see that he's good together. One of the most moving pieces of church history I've ever read comes from a follower of Christ living and dying in 1851. It was an English missionary named Alan Gardner. And Alan Gardner was shipwrecked uh, with a number of other people on a very remote, uninhabited island just off the tip of South America. They were missionaries. They were going to take the good news of Jesus to others who hadn't heard it. And all of them ended up dying on that island. When you first read this story, you say, how could this be good? How could God allow this? Once shipwrecked, one at a time, it seems, that they died. And as far as we can tell, Alan Gardner was the last one alive. He kept a journal, and they found it right next to his body when they discovered them. So imagine this. Christian missionary with other missionaries risking their life to go take the good news of who God is to people who might not know, and they're shipwrecked, And then one by one, he watches as his brothers and sisters die. And he's the last. And he's starving. Was his faith wrecked? The very last entry in his journal was a quote from Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And the very last thing he wrote, probably as he was dying, he wrote this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. You and I infer goodness based on what God gives us or doesn't give us, what's happening to us, what our circumstances are. But Alan Gardner must have had direct contact with God. And he saw that God is good because there's no other explanation of how he could write those words. 
Have you seen and tasted this same goodness? If you haven't, take Pascal's wager. Spend a year. Devote yourself to a year of tasting and seeing. If you know and would say that he's good, but you're struggling to believe it right now, do an inventory. Go back, like I did this week, and think about all the times when God felt closest to you and ask yourself, is he good or not good? Something I realized happens when we talk about how could God be good even though we experience these things, I think what we're really saying is not that God isn't good when he shows up. We just want him to show up more. So think about all the times where you know for sure he showed up and he was in the room. He was in the conversation. Is he good? I think you'll say yes. And let your longing let the thoughts that say, but when, where was he here and where was he there and why... Let your longing for more of him drive you to taste and see him more, to invite him more fully into your life, to remove all those things that you know, all those sins, those habits that actually create a barrier for his presence in your life. Let that longing not be a move to say, I'm not sure he's good, but a move to say, I want more of his goodness. Amen? That's what we need, church. More of God. Alan Gardner had as much of God as he needed even though death was creeping in. God wants you to know he's good all the time. Let's pray.